Good morning. Grateful to be here with all of you. Let's pray before we get into our discussion today. Gracious God, you know what we bring today, what we carry in our hearts and our minds, the weight on our shoulders, the anxiety in our gut. You see us for all that we are, and we rejoice that you receive us in all that we are. In your mercy, God, we ask that you would lead us to your truth, that we might offer love and compassion to one another. You are good, God, and what you do is good. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Placing a sermon on fasting in the month of November was a risky choice. I'm going to acknowledge that. I was the one who made that decision. But to put it in proximity to Thanksgiving is a bit of a decision. But anytime we even talk about fasting, it can sometimes feel a bit like there's a lot on the line. Fasting is something that happens uh, in a variety of religions. It's not exclusive to Christianity. Islam and Buddhism, Taoism and Judaism, Jainism, Hinduism, they all have fasting as a part of their regular religious practice. But in modern American Christian spaces, uh, we don't bring it up very often. It's not on the list of our top 10 best spiritual practices. We don't tend to talk about it. And some of that, I think, is fair. This sermon might be triggering for some of you. The content might be difficult. There are those in this room who have struggled themselves with or are in proximity to others who have had challenges with food insecurity, with disordered eating, with clinical diagnosis of an eating disorder. And so any topic relating to food at all can be sensitive. There is not shame or judgment for any of that. And if you need to excuse yourself this morning from this space, physically or virtually, for your own mental and physical well-being, then we affirm that as a wise choice. But for this sermon and overall for our discipline and study, uh, our goal is to consider fasting in a very wide sense and not a narrow one. Fasting as inclusive of refraining from food, but food as one thing on a long list of things we fast from. So what is a fast? Well, in its most basic form, a fast is denying yourself something that is normally essential or crucial in order to create space for attentiveness to God. This attentiveness sometimes comes through prayer or meditation, other spiritual practices. This is in order for us to keep the central truth in our minds that God is our sustaining power and that there are things to be gained by choosing to, for a time, release our needs in order to lean into God's presence. It means creating space to cling to God rather than the things of this world, even things that we perceive as necessary for our daily life. Fasting is the practice of temporary, intentional substitution. And I think it's easy for us to misunderstand this, and you can kind of see why others might do so. If we think that the point of fasting is the deprivation of self, then fasting is actually a real burden. And it can turn into something where we 
go to an extreme where we stand in freezing cold streams in the wintertime to prove that our body means nothing to us, right? That's not the sort of spiritual practice we're looking for here. If we interpret fasting as the inclusion of something rather than the exclusion, I think we get closer to its actual purpose and goal. We should note first, however, what fasting is not. It is not a hatred of our bodies or their physical needs. It is not a critique of the physical world as a whole. It is not a value judgment on anything that we substitute, i.e. TV is bad, so I'm going to fast from it. Chocolate is bad, so I'm going to fast from it. It's not an attempt to prove God's power through starvation or dehydration, nor a method to prove our own righteousness. Rather, it is an effort to choose for a specific time frame to emphasize God's goodness in giving us our daily bread and to rejoice in God's adequacy for our relationship. There are many people whose stories are found in the Christian Bible who fast for different reasons and in different kinds of contexts. Fasting is often done to gain clarity or to petition God on a particular question. Sometimes this means it's for a specific reason, and sometimes it is a larger pattern of regular fasting. Moses fasted before receiving the Ten Commandments on the mountain of God. David fasted in an attempt to get God to change his mind, spare his child. Esther fasted before asking the king to spare her people. Anna the prophetess fasted regularly in her life in the temple, those many years she served. Paul fasted during his experience after the Damascus Road, but before he became a baptized believer three days later. With so many good examples, we see that the reasons for fasting are wide. And each of them used fasting as a tool to get close to God. We also see Jesus fasting for 40 days when he was tempted in the wilderness. Before he embarks on his public ministry, before he formally calls his disciples, before his long three-year walk to the cross, Jesus sets aside time to dedicate God's work. And just a few chapters after that, Jesus speaks to the crowds who have gathered to hear him teaching about how to fast. He encourages them in Matthew 6, when you fast, do not do so like the hypocrites. There's a crucial word there, this when, because it assumes that they will be fasting, that fasting is present in their life. And then he tells them to fast, not like the hypocrites do, drawing attention to themselves, but looking like they're dead if they don't eat something to prove their deep dedication, but rather to look as normal as they can, to do their daily routines, to not draw attention to their fast. And he says, if you do so, you can receive the reward of God. So Jesus, first assuming that they will fast, gives them specific instructions on how they are to act and how they are to look while they're fasting. But why is he so concerned about their appearance? And what might be behind that concern? Our main text today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, where God is speaking to the people through the prophet Isaiah about their actions of worship, and in particular about their fasting. Like the story in Matthew 6, where Jesus is speaking, God here acknowledges that the people are fasting. 
it is not in either story the action of fasting or its absence that is the problem. It is the attitude of the fast that creates the issue. So in the first portion of Isaiah 58, which we're not going to read, God speaks to Israel about their actions of worship. It starts with the phrase, shout out, and instructs that Israel should be told of their sins. And then we hear this contrast between God's perspective and the perspective of the people. The people, God says, believe that they are seeking God and that they are delighted to know the ways of God. But God tells a different story. He says, if you knew what kind of trouble you were in, you would not ask me, why do we fast, but you don't see us? Why do we humble ourselves, but you don't respond? Israel thinks that they are in the right and that their actions are righteous, that their regular fasts and rituals were saving them. But God says that on their sacred days of fasting, that they're starting fights and arguments, that they are enacting violence, there is abuse of power, that they harass the poor. And verse 5 lands a really powerful statement that God levels against the people. Am I asking, God says, for a ritual? As if you were just bowing and scraping, wearing the right clothes, doing the motions correctly? Is that the kind of fast that I seek? We're going to start in Isaiah 58, 6 through 9. Is not this the kind of fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see them naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call for help, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, he goes on and on to describe what is required for them to do rightly. So if God's question before our passage is, Is it a ritual fast that I seek? Our text tells us the answer is clearly no. God is upset, not because they have failed to fast, but because their fasts were insincere. They were not true fasts. They did not allow the gift of fasting to root itself in their hearts. And instead, they treated it as if it were a box to check. Like a school assignment that gets graded on completion, and not comprehension and application. Instead, God says, I wanted you to know the depth of my heart by drawing close to me in this discipline. I wanted you to live that out. I wanted the physical reality of your fasting to turn to compassion, that it might be applied in the needs of those around you. 
And instead, you did the opposite. You created more problems for those who are vulnerable. You did not understand the purpose of this fast. And you should have not engaged in it at all. If, God says, you can learn the meaning of this, then I will hear you. Once you have shared what you have, welcomed in those who are vulnerable, sacrificed, been merciful, then I will hear you. Then will a light break forth. The examples that God gives of what a true fast looks like are connected. There's a theme relating to greater systems of oppression and local systems of oppression. Those who are without housing. Those unclothed because of their poverty. Those without food security. Those who are vulnerable to unfair systems of employment. It repeats itself time and time again, talking about the bonds of injustice, the yoke of oppression, the ties and weights of the system. The central thread is this. When you fast, God says, fast as one aware of what you have and go and ensure others also have it. Meet the daily needs of those around you. Do not make their lives more difficult. Remove from yourselves the pointing finger of blame and shame. Remove from yourselves the bitter heart that you have, which is speaking evil. Remove from yourselves the yoke of oppression, which is among you because you put it on their necks. And all of this discussion around Isaiah 58 is a continuation of what Jesus was saying in Matthew 6 about fasting and attitude. There is an assumption that those who are submitted to God will fast. And the second assumption is that fasting is not just something to be done, but something to be learned and something to be lived. If we are to be fully in God's kingdom, there is an instruction we should fast. For most of us, that's the first step. Whether we do so addressing a specific concern or discernment in our life, or in order to create a regular rhythm, we have to start fasting. The second step is that as we fast, we ensure that they are not just rituals. Without the heart of God and that closeness to God's desire, without our own desire to ensure the daily needs of others are met, our well-intentioned actions are empty. Instead, we are given the chance to make the deep love of God into an action in our fasting to extend care for the poor, compassion to those who are in need, to take drastic measures to ensure that those in our community are cared for. These two elements create for us the discipline of fasting, one that can change and transform us. In our larger conversation about Christian disciplines, you could argue that fasting is the simplest on paper. We simply decide the what, the thing that we're fasting from, and the when, how long and what day we're going to fast. Then we trade our choice and our predetermined time, and in exchange, we get closeness with God. Seems pretty simple. But as we reflect on this text in Isaiah and the words of Jesus in Matthew 6 and in Matthew 9, 
we must ensure that this technically simple practice does not become a place of sin. Once we have a mindset of genuine faithful motivation for fasting, then we begin to live that life. Fasting is the tool. While the process of aligning our will to God and joining God in caring for the world is what we gain from the practice of fasting. I'm going to name some things that might be something you can fast from. And I would encourage you to pick a day and a time this week to fast. Don't wait. Don't let it get away from you. But when we temporarily substitute our own necessities for God's presence, we can become aware of our own attachments and more aware of our true reliance on God. Remember that no method of fasting is holier than any other. Substituting something that's more essential does not get you bonus points in heaven. When we start categorizing that sort of thing, making judgments on our own fast and the fast of others, then we yield to an inferior spirit of fasting, one that's worried about appearances and personal adequacy. But God is the one who makes the fast holy. We only need to desire it, to practice it, and to live it. Perhaps your best fast will be from food, from coffee or tea or however you get your caffeine, from cigarettes, from your TV time in the evenings, from reading, from your non-essential spending, from casting judgment, from name-calling and snark, no matter how well-deserved. Whatever it is that you choose, on this short list or off of it, to fast from, choose a specific time and give it up and draw close to God instead. Fasting as a practice is not intended to be something you do every day in the same way. Fasting is an intentional choice with a time limit in order to offer a time of connection with God. So because of this, we include it in our regular days differently than we do many of the other spiritual disciplines, something like prayer or silence. Fasting is more about making a larger pattern in your life than it is about daily effort. My mother always fasts on Sunday mornings before church so that her first meal of each Sunday is the Lord's Supper. That is the kind of pattern thinking, long-term, framed with time, that changes our lives. Because it honors God's sufficiency and God's provision for our needs. You've been listening to me, Pastor Kana Moore, at Hayes Christian Church. Hayes Christian Church is a non-denominational fellowship in Hayes, Kansas. We are supported by the generosity of our members, attenders, and friends. The financial support we raise goes to projects which further spread the gospel to those who do not yet know Jesus, to those local, national, and international missions, and they help keep these podcasts free. If you would like to share a monetary gift with us, please visit our website at hayeschristianchurch.org and click on the donate button, or you may mail your gift to P.O. Box 1111, Hayes, Kansas, 
If you have any questions, comments, or would like more information, we would love to hear from you. Simply go to our website and click on the Contact Us form. Thank you for your generosity, and may God bless you as you seek to follow Him.